I got to tell you, it's so nice to be reminded that God loves me. Is it nice for you too? Does it give your heart comfort and hope? It does mine. And I would say equally as powerful is when you have a brother or sister in Christ come up beside you, perhaps on a day when you didn't know you needed it. They certainly didn't know that you needed it and have them come alongside you and say, I just want you to know that I love you. There's power in the word love. And love is central to the resurrection of Christ. If it was not for the amazing love of Jesus, he wouldn't have bothered with all that crucifixion stuff. But because of an amazing love in Christ that he wanted to make apparent to the likes of you and to me, he died on that cross. But with the hope and the promise that God's love was stronger than even death. And then when Christ rose from the dead three days later, he proclaimed once and forevermore that love is in fact stronger than death. There's there's nothing, in other words, in your life that's going on currently, which is stronger, mightier than God's love. God's love, in the end, will proclaim the victory in your life. And that's something that is a central part of the rising tide. When Christ came out of the grave, alive, in his resurrected body, he set forth a rising tide, something of such power and import. It is never-ending. It is never ceasing until he comes back again, and it's the ultimate fulfillment of all power. And we live into the fullness of life and victory forevermore. But now, for you and me, we have an opportunity. An opportunity to ride the rising tide. An opportunity that is meant to give us life and life to the full, even now. Even now, before you go to heaven. But there's some things in our lives, we'll call them weights of the world. And these weights of the world, they make us say slow or no to riding the rising tide. My my intent in this series that's going to span here until the 1st of June is that we'll be able to identify these weights. And we'll be able to cut cords with them, cut ties with them forevermore so that we are set free to ride the rising tide and live into the fullness of life that Jesus Christ has in store for us. And surely the rising tide today is all about us being the embodiment of love, amazing love, the same love that God loves us with. It's our opportunity to look at others and see their worth also. And to love them with such a love that has such power that they might also realize their inestimable worth. Inestimable worth. I think there's things that we can all agree that we've gathered to see and do which people have proclaimed to have inestimable worth. Perhaps for you, it might have been a trip to see the great pyramids of Egypt, or maybe it was some of the great cathedrals of Europe. Inestimable worth. Nobody can calculate their worth. But for me and my family, more recently, 
It was a trip to Paris, France, wherein we saw the most famous piece of art ever in the history of the world. It's the Mona Lisa pointed, painted rather, by da Vinci. And um, just to give uh, you ease, this is not the original here before us today at First Baptist. But I will tell you that you can go to see the original in the Louvre. That's the big museum in the heart of Paris. And the thing about the Louvre is that it's got art for years. You could spend decades of your life simply taking in the art that is in this museum. And yet, 80%, 80% of the people that come to this international art gallery come specifically to see the Mona Lisa. And what would otherwise be viewed as a scenic, calm art exhibit, it comes a little bit like Lord of the Flies when you get in the room where the Mona Lisa picture is hung. I mean, people are, are elbowing, they're, they're jostling for position. Also, also, they can take an ussy, not a selfie, but an ussy with Mona, including... My own beret-wearing daughter, Maggie, who got her ussy with Mona Lisa. Here's my thought about why we as human beings want to gather around things that have inestimable value. It's because when we do, we are in some way enlightened to our own worth. I don't know what type of self-worth you put on your life or person today. Some might be riding high. You, you might feel like you have a very high estimation of your self-worth. If, that, if that's you, that's great. Others, however, might feel like yours are fluctuating between high and low, and then still others might feel like they are at the basement bottom of when it comes to self-worth. You would just say to me today, Pastor, I, I don't feel like I'm worth nothing to nobody. I've been there. I know what that feeling is like, but just like we can get around a picture that has inestimable worth and then somehow we're inspired about our, our own worth, so too can we get around a risen Savior. A risen Savior, mind you, who, as in the words of 1 Peter, redeemed you, not with gold or silver, but with something imperishable, from heaven. It, it was his own blood. He, he redeemed you. He, he took something that was worth nothing, sinners like us, and he laid his life down as a sacrifice. And in that, he took something that was worth nothing and he made it to have likewise inestimable value. Something now that, like you and me, are imperishable too. We, we will not ever know spiritual death and then in the great mystery of the end of times, our physical bodies will also, like Christ's, know resurrection. Amazing. Incredible. Something which makes us wonder if that's what we're to live into, what could be holding us back? Well, here's a word I want us to seize upon this morning. What I believe is the weight that's holding us back from truly being buoyed by the, the rising tide is indifference. Now, what does that word indifference mean to you? 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you what it means to me. Indifference to me means we are focused on me and mine. Me and mine. It's almost like indifference is if it doesn't benefit me, if it doesn't serve me, if it doesn't help me, then I need not apply. And what that does is it it makes us turn a blind eye to the people around us because they're not me. They're not my That's their problem. But in the amazing love which Christ gave us, if if we're truly to understand it, if we're truly to live into it, then we likewise have to practice it. It's with these words that, that Peter is writing this first century group of Jewish Christians. All right, they've been exiled. They've been scattered all across the face of the earth, and they find themselves living in Galatia. Throughout Galatia would be Asia Minor, And to these very discouraged group of people, Peter is giving them a pep talk. You've had one of those a time or two in your life, I I hope. Someone that comes around, puts their arm around your shoulder, and they say, come on, you, you can do this. You can do this. That's what Peter is doing to these Jewish Christians. Because the world of the first century, in which the this early church is living into, it's riddled with indifference, particularly if you are a minority group like early church Christians were. If you were a minority group, well, you weren't worth nothing to nobody. And, and these Jewish Christians, which Peter is writing, they're beginning to internalize that. They're beginning to have doubts. They want to give up. They want to just succumb to the weight and just say, well, Instead of trying to live into this amazing love, it's just far easier just to be indifferent like everybody else. So maybe it would help if I gave you a little insight into the indifference that the first century world was mired into. This is an actual outtake of a letter from a first century Roman correspondence between a husband and a wife. The husband's writing the wife, and he says the following, I'm still in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I'll send them to you. In the meantime, when you give birth, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. Now, what is this individual talking about? He's talking about a common practice wherein if you did not want your child, you simply left them out in the elements and then eventually they succumb to the cold or the heat or the hunger or the thirst. And this is, this is a common practice that they had within their own family circles. How much more? How much more would it be to people that were other, that were different, that were minuscule in number? So much more. Indifference ruled. And Peter's looking at these group of Christians and he's saying, but... You're not like that. In fact, the way that you are going to change the world is by practicing an amazing love, which is so counter to the indifference of the age that it's it's really going to change the tides of power. Such is true. The first century church, which was illegal, in which they were open to persecution in 1336, 336 rather, AD, Constantine, the Roman emperor, is himself baptized, and he not only proclaims Christianity as legal, but he also 
He also says it is now the national religion. (laughs) Amazing turn of events. How did it get there? It got there not through political power or might or maneuvering. It got there because a group of people were so committed to practicing the amazing love of Christ while also giving a stiff arm to the indifference of the age that they won the hearts of people. They, in their practice of amazing love, they proved further that there was a resurrected Savior whose power is so prominent even now in our hearts and minds that we can not only just be different, but we can truly live different than the culture of our age. And how important is that even today? I guess you might say that maybe the tide has shifted back a bit. Indifference is back with a vengeance. You've seen this. You've felt this. Here are maybe a few anecdotes, and, and they all surround this, uh, this journey of American life in which we call the pursuit of happiness. Happiness, this, this fleeting emotion that is, that is so desperately wanted by all, and, and yet nobody really knows how to do it, so we just kind of go all in, and we do all sorts of different tactics and maneuvering to, to try to achieve happiness and make it stay. Good luck. And when we try to fixate and find this moving target, debt gets out of control. People spend more than they make. Debt gets out of control. So one trillion dollar consumer index debt amongst credit card holders in the United States. Why? Shopping makes you happy. Workaholic parents can't cut it off, right? They go home and they they continue to work. They can't pay attention to the kids. And then the kids not getting the attention from the parents, they lean into other sources of authorities. And these authorities tell them they don't need to know boundaries. They can do whatever makes them happy. Screens dominate our lives. We'll be at a dinner table or out to eat at a restaurant. We'll see a family of four. None of them are talking. What are they doing? Looking at their phone. Church has become a convenience or an in-case of emergency solution only for far many, far too many. And perhaps this one, loneliness and isolation reign. Loneliness and isolation reign, which is believed to be more dangerous by health experts than smoking cigarettes. All of these things, all of these things, don't they say indifference? Don't they say me and my? Don't they say not only indifference towards others, but maybe even more condemning, it's indifference to the nature and the content of our own hearts and souls. Indifference. And so this this word of God, preserved across the expanse of history and time, is, is here today so that you likewise can get a pep talk. Because you you need a pep talk. The first thing that this word of God says to you is remember your inestimable worth. Remember your inestimable worth. Your inestimable worth is always and forevermore proclaimed by a Savior who died for you. And this makes no sense because when Jesus died for you, he imputed upon you his righteousness and his worth. It's it's like if Pastor David here was to get into the painting game 
And in an extraordinary turn of events, extraordinary, I was able to hang my work right next to the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. People from all around the world would come to see my work. They'd take ussies with my work. Not because my work is worth anything, I'm terrible at art, but because I'm beside the Mona Lisa. (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm with Mona. And, and you're, and me, we're with Jesus. So no matter where you are, who you are, what you're doing, how you're feeling, remember your own inestimable worth because the person standing beside you is a pretty amazing savior. And he doesn't want to hog the spotlight. He wants to share it with who? You, me. Remember your inestimable worth. Jesus is worth is your worth, and therefore you are a masterpiece. That's one. Two, remind other people of their inestimable worth. This a word that I want us to realize. It's, it's, it's the love, it's the, it's the word that's going to cut ties with indifference forevermore, and it's sincere love. Sincere love is something that cannot be faked, It's something that cannot be falsified. It is or it isn't. I look at it in the following way. Fake love is like telling someone near to you, love you. You ever tried that, guys? How'd that work out for you? Not too good, right? What does love you mean? Well, I think there's some notion of love in love you. But does it really mean love? Now, what we're talking about is a non-counterfeit version of love. Love, love in this sense is I love you. And that's exactly what we are practicing with others so that they will realize their own inestimable worth. It's the type of thing that is like the true Mona Lisa. There's a lot of counterfeit Mona Lisas out there. You might have seen or heard of them, people trying to pass off their Mona Lisa as as the real one and sell it at auction and try to make money. But there's only one real Mona Lisa. There's only one real version of love. So I have a question for you that I think will help you determine real love and then be able to practice it with others and allow them to be reminded of their own inestimable worth. And it's this, what does sincere love require of me? Now, if there was something I wanted you to write down, it'd be that. Something that you would ask at the onset of every day, at the onset of every staff meeting, at the onset of every drive to Atlanta, or the onset of every family activity, or maybe especially when there's conflict in the house and you're not feeling so good, to step back and ask this question, what does sincere love require of me? And what that will do is that will remove any notion of me and my far away from your next actions. And when you remove me and my away from your next steps, guess what? You will more likely than not be leaning into a God-proposed solution to your life, which is going to be far better than anything that you could conjure up. And when we ask this question, it allows the implications to no longer be about us. And it also allows us to know that while we'll never be a da Vinci, while my artwork will never go alongside the Mona Lisa, asking this question, practicing sincere love allows us all, allows us all to be at work with our own masterpiece. Susan Anderson, 
How would you describe her life? Dare I say masterpiece. 103 years of faithful living, 76 years as a member of this church, masterpiece, masterpiece. She leaves a legacy, a legacy that's to be followed, a legacy wherein Susan is likewise inviting us all, practice sincere love. See where it leads you, see what it does, but I guarantee you this, you will look back on your life and you, you will say, well, it certainly wasn't boring, and my, wasn't it worthwhile? So as we conclude, I've got a prayer I want you to scribble down. A prayer that in addition to that question, what does sincere love require of me, I think will further help solidify your next steps. And it's, and it's this. God, help me to see others as you see them and love them as Jesus Christ loves me. I want to repeat that again. God, help me to see others as you see them and love them as Jesus Christ loves me. Ask that question. Practice that prayer. I guarantee you, you're cutting ties with indifference. I guarantee you, you're practicing sincere love. I guarantee you that you are being reminded of your own worth and reminding others of theirs, and you will be riding the rising tide. As we turn now to this time of response, a time in which you, the congregation, can come forward and ask for prayer or profess a decision to follow Christ as Savior or to join this church, I invite you to stand and take your hymnal and sing as you respond.